Hello and welcome back to our podcast. We're so glad to have you here with us on our journey as we look through the Psalms and as we try to recreate some of the community that we've all missed while we're in lockdown. My name's Cameron and I live in Launceston, Tasmania and I'm looking very much forward to our discussion today. And I'm Lachlan and I'm in Sydney at the moment. And that's all we have this evening because Luke and Ken are both unavailable. We might uh, just start with a quick word of prayer and then we'll jump into today's psalm, which is Psalm 114. Dear Father in heaven, as we read uh, this psalm, we ask it might uh, show us a clearer picture of you and who you are, of ourselves, so that we can live more authentic lives and lives that make a more permanent, more lasting and more meaningful difference in the world around us. Amen. Amen. So uh, this week, as we've done once or twice so far, we've we've picked a psalm to tie in with some of the themes from the Sabbath School Quarterly. Yeah. So this week's lesson is titled The Bible as History and steps through a number of different aspects of understanding the historical events that happen in the Bible. It focuses most particularly on the Old Testament, but it does culminate in the character, the person, and the stories of Jesus. And one of the themes that underpins so much of the historical founding of the Old Testament is the Exodus event. For most of the Old Testament, the Exodus event is what sets the stage for what is happening. And some people even argue that the Exodus event sets the stage for things that happen in the Bible story before the Exodus, Because, for example, the Israelites can leave Egypt and go to the promised land and take the promised land as their own because God has created the whole world and is able at his discretion to make it theirs. So the Exodus is a very formative narrative in the Old Testament. A number of Psalms reference this. But Psalm 114 references it in a strange way, and it opens up an interesting possibility for us to think a little bit on this theme of the Bible as history and what that means and how we deal with it and how we cope with the way we interact with history, given that firstly, we're quite separated in time from the events of the Old Testament, and secondly, that we're in quite different kind of world, and thirdly, that we have sometimes different kinds of questions and experiences, but we are still seeking that same fundamental truth, that same understanding of God, and we are seeking for it to be meaningful and to provide sense of the experience of the world that we have. Yep, well, let's read the psalm. I'll read the first four verses, Locke, and you can read the last four verses of the psalm. I'm reading from the NIV, Psalm 114. When Israel came out of Egypt the house of Jacob, from a people of foreign tongue. Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills, like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Yeah, look, I, I really enjoyed this psalm. Um, I enjoyed its energy, and I enjoyed its its uh, 
imagery. There is a sense of uncontainable joy expressed through the natural kingdom. And particularly, I like the idea of these mountains skipping like rams. Yeah, there's the, there's a great anthropomorphization, a personification of these things. The, the sea doesn't just draw back or fold back in the wind. It looked and fled in verse 3. And the Jordan t- turned back. Clearly, these are these are events um, that are being referenced here. The sea looking and fled. That's that's the the sea parting when Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt. And the Jordan turning back. That's the the somewhat mirroring event as they enter into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. So there's strong echoes here of the Exodus story, but it's really, really nicely described in this poetic and, and so, as you say, somewhat euphoric kind of song. It, obviously, um, the psalmist is drawing on the um, the narratives. And when, when you read Exodus, you know, it's written much more like a history than it is like a song. And he's drawing on those those elements of his nation's history, but he's certainly playing with with those elements. There's not a real um, attention paid to chronology in the psalm. If you're going to look at this psalm as a history, it it combines, like you say, or mentions adjacent to each other the the Red Sea and the Jordan. And um, then right at the very end, we have the water coming from the rock, which of course happens in the middle. Mm. And the story is being told with a purpose. The purpose is basically stated in verse 7, right? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. So it is a song of of praise and of statement of the power of God. And it, it's power uh, exercised for a specific purpose as well. Um, there's It's God's power to deliver and it's God's power to provide with with the pool of water. Um, in the desert referenced at the very end of the psalm. Mm, I like the way that you've drawn those two focused ideas out of it. That's great. I like just just from a sort of literary or, or vi- poetic construction point of view, verses 3 and 4 and then 5 and 6, which sort of tell the stories a little bit poetically, the, the sea looked and fled and the mountains skipped like rams and so on. And then in verse 5 and 6, it gets flicked back as a question. So it's it's clearly raising the suspense a little bit. These things happened and they sound a little bit amazing. They sound astonishing. And so before giving any ex- any sort of reason for it, it repeats that little phrase as questions. You know, what ails you, O.C., that you flee? Mm. Why would you do this? O mountains, what's the reason that you're skipping like rams? So there's a tension that is built, an anticipation that is built that really places the literary emphasis on the the concluding verses of the psalm, the statement of the power of God. Locke, do we have any information about when this psalm was written? That's a good question. I haven't really been able to find anything. I have read some suggestion that um, it's picking up themes that are reflected in sort of the interpretations of these stories, perhaps at the time of the exile. But that would place it quite a long time after David. It's not, in my Bible, it's not introduced with a title saying a psalm of David or or of Solomon, as some of our others have been. So I don't really know when this is placed. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, the psalms seem to embrace a fair diversity of historical origin, as it were. Um, so there's there's a great uh, 
pleasure taken in telling the old stories, telling them in a new way. And yet there's the other psalms that seem to celebrate newness, you know, sing a new song to the Lord, tell what he's done. You know, most of the songs that we sing uh, in church draw on very ancient history. I wonder, is that true predominantly of the psalms? I mean, if this dates from the exile, then they're reflecting on something from, from well back in their past. Um, I was I was thinking this week, what would a psalm look like if I was to describe dealing with the tri- trials and the and the difficulties and the the battles that I face in my day to day life? It would be quite difficult, I think. You know, I went to the office and it was boring again, and you know the person down the road down the the row persecuted me as he always does at work, and. Uh, I had a flat tire or something, but in the midst of it all, God, you were there and your deliverance is magnificent and against all the trials I've experienced day to day, nothing else seems to count. Um, you, you could you could try putting a <laughs> psalm together along those lines. It'd be a bit less dramatic than, than certainly this psalm. Yes, it would be less dramatic. And might I suggest that you would have to work on it a little bit to match this psalm, 114, in terms of sort of purity of form. Yeah. Uh, we've already noted this, and, and I will just throw in the comment that the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary states in in its introduction to this psalm that the psalm is noted for its perfection of form and dramatic vividness, and the, the structure of four stanzas of two verses each, in each stanza the dominant note is set forth in terse language. That's... That's quoting from the Bible commentary. It's picking up the same idea we've we've already identified. There is something really elegant about this psalm that would be a challenge. It would take time, I think, um, to formulate such a refined expression mm. if you were to do the activity of creating one uh, contemporarily, mm. like you suggest. It does show the fact that these, these Exodus stories crop up um, shows that... Uh, to the to the people who who learnt them, to the people who who grew up learning these stories and uh, memorising them in in all likelihood, um, it's it is quite likely that even through past the time of Christ, most people were illiterate who knew these stories, so there would have been a lot of memorising. Um, that it served a very real purpose for them, and I, I always find it interesting when people talk about the historicity of the Bible. On a couple of fronts, uh, one of them is the idea that something being historical means the truth is objectively known, uh, that there's there's no need for for discussion or there's no need to acknowledge difference of opinion or there is no difference of opinion to be had because the thing is history and it's it's more or less established. And uh, my wife, uh, in her research, did a little bit of digging into history looking at primary sources and you know in her own small way she she discovered that historians don't tend to think of history in that way um, and I've got a great colleague at, at school where I work who, who's done a lot of work looking at uh, the horrific persecution of Tasmanian Aboriginals and again he spent a lot of time poring over original documents where where Although the subject he's, he's discovering, he's looking into, is, is historical in nature, there's a huge amount of energy that needs to be put in at the part of historians to, to 
try and arrive at something that's not just objective, but that that has contains meaning. That is, it transports meaning from those times to our times um, to help us live. Yeah, I, we should perhaps have had our wives on as guests if if family schedules would allow such a thing with young children. Um, because my wife has also done some history study and made similar comments to me when I asked about this psalm. Uh, she pointed out an anecdote from her experience as a high school student arriving half an hour early to the exam room so that she and a few friends could cram the dates into their short-term memory so that they would be able to answer the history test correctly, as if somehow the dates were the most important element of these historical events. And as she has studied history a little further, um, she reflects back on that experience and, and sees that it was perhaps a valid way to get marks in high school, but it was a fairly substantial misrepresentation of what the challenges of studying history and being a historian really are. Because you're correct, the, the dates are in some ways the, the less important things. The reason for studying history is to try and understand more interesting elements of what happened. You know, why did someone do what they did? Can we learn from their context and try and understand a little bit about motivation or, you know, some of these sorts of things? Yeah, because, of course, the, the, the reason we study history is not because it happened. There are many things that have happened, and you, you couldn't ever cover them all in one life, and, and nor is the point of history just sort of vicariously trying to time machine yourself back to the past. The fact that it happened is, is perhaps important, and exactly what happened is important, in as much as it informs the way we live today. And mm. there are some broad themes. I mean, one of the problems that historians have to deal with is the fact that history tends to be written by the victors. And I remember Luke saying in a previous discussion when we were looking at Psalm 137, I think, the, the one that definitely dates from the exile, uh, where the psalmist records being mocked by the, by the Babylonian captors. He, Luke observed that people who win battles generally insist on being remembered well by history. They want to be thanked for liberating the people they've, they've, they've beaten. And, and the tendency of, of, of people to write history the way they'd, they'd like it to be written makes the job of the historian quite difficult. I, I know at least I've heard that, that this is true of some of the documents recorded by Egypt in the hieroglyphs, by the Egyptian cultures. It records their successes, but not many of their failures. One of the things that I think stands out in favour of the the Bible's historicity, not just meaning in the sense of recording something that happened the way it happened accurately, but historicity in the sense of recording the stories from the past that will help us today, um, is the fact that it dwells so heavily on Israel's failures, and it also dwells so heavily on those times when against all odds, success was achieved, but not through their efforts. And the author goes to extreme efforts to point out. This seems to be the opposite of the, of the pattern I described earlier, where, where the winners write history to make themselves look good. Certainly the Exodus is fairly, very clear in the story of the Exodus, who is responsible for this you know, fantastic deliverance. Well, I, I couldn't agree more, and I suspect that's a large part of why it's such a dominating 
idea and and theme in the Old Testament, just as a as an illustration of how pervasive it is. We, as modern Adventist Christians, often place great emphasis on creation as being the defining point of of who God is and our relationship to God. But it's interesting to note that God is only referred to in the Old Testament as the Creator about six times, whereas He is referred to more than 30 times as the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And when you stop to think of it, you realize that is that is the phrasing that is even more apparent. You know, I am the God, the God of your fathers who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So it's a really, a really consistent theme. There's something fascinating, though, despite that very high level of, of referencing, and that's only the specific counting sort of specifically when God is mentioned. Obviously, echoes of the Exodus story are, are very much more frequent than that. But there's something unique about the reference to Exodus in this Psalm 114, and it's something I'd like to focus in on a little bit as we're discussing it. And it was one of the reasons for selecting this psalm to look at. And to lead in, I am going to read the first paragraph of an introduction to an, uh, an essay about this psalm that I found that really got my brain ticking. And it says this, During the past few decades, the exodus has become the ground metaphor to signify the escape from slavery or the rescue from different forms of political and socio-economical oppression. Some African and other third world theologians may have become somewhat complacent in accepting that any reference to the Exodus implies a link with political and economic oppression. To my mind, such such presuppositions do not do justice to the richness of the Exodus as a multi-layered theological metaphor in the Old Testament. And from there it goes on to look at the first verse of this psalm, 114. Because let me draw your attention back to it. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Egypt is described not as the land in which we were slaves, not as the oppressive empire for which we had to make bricks and who came and absolutely unfairly killed our baby boys and all of the horrific things from the slavery experience that the Israelites had in the land of Egypt. The only point that is worth, that is mentioned here in this psalm is the language was a foreign language. When, when Israel went out from a country where they spoke a different language, and it sounds kind of minimizing in a sense. You know, you can certainly see what this author that I just quoted from is getting at. In Psalm 114, there isn't a strong sense of political and socioeconomic oppression and slavery and the, the, the sort of class distinction and valuing of people as equals and all of those deep issues, which are genuine issues. But for this particular Psalm, the mention is almost cultural isolation yeah it's cultural and so i think there is something really interesting here this this seems to be a unique description of the exodus as being an escape from a people of a foreign language and it makes me wonder this is sort of the question when we're doing history obviously the exodus was so many things happening all at once so if we're going to tell the story the very fact 
that we're telling it means we're probably going to have to choose a couple of frameworks or a couple uh, a framework with a couple of themes in other words the way we tell the story is going to necessarily focus on certain elements you could tell the exodus story and indeed in the book of exodus it is very much told as a story of liberation from oppression the story opens with God hearing the cry of suffering of his people. He says to Moses, I need you to go and do this because I have heard the cry. There's there's a huge amount of setting up the story. Not only are they slaves, but then, then to sort of, out of spite, Pharaoh makes them work harder and get their own straw as well as make the bricks. And so there's a very strong slavery oppression liberation narrative in in the telling of the story in the book of exodus itself and here in this psalm 114 the same story is being told by the same cultural people but different details are being drawn and it raises it, it highlights the impossibility of saying which telling of this story is right it's interesting i'm now gonna i'm now gonna almost certainly misquote people but uh, one person i was speaking with said that a jewish tradition is that each each passage of scripture is like a it's like a jewel with many facets that that there is there is a thousand opinions in every verse uh, a thousand correct opinions in every verse something along those lines i i, I can't remember the reference for that um, but one thing that ken um told me dr- throughout the week when i had a phone call with him he's reading a book written by a jewish rabbi on morality in this book there's a great account uh, this speaks to the idea like, of, of there being many ways of looking at something. And it's got a good twist at the end, which is perhaps less relevant to our discussion, but it's a great story. It's a story that comes from the, the Jewish rabbinic tradition, so I think it's called the Midrash, about a disagreement over the meaning of a particular passage of Scripture. And on, in this disagreement, there, there are two schools of thought, school A and school B. And these two schools of thought had different opinions, and they came to God and they said to God, who's whose opinion is correct. And God said, I approve of both these opinions because they are sincere attempts to interpret Scripture. But Hmm. school B is correct because when they teach their opinion, they also mention the views of school A. And, Uh. And they have the humility to mention them before they mention their own. But school A are so sure they're right that they don't mention the teaching of school B. So that's an interesting, uh, interesting idea, isn't it? That there's that there are lots of ways of looking at these stories, and it's, it was ultimately, of course, the way they treated each other that that mm. that was the basis on which God differentiated between the two. I thought that was a great story. Uh, it's certainly the case that um, good story represents reality fairly and and c.s lewis made the point that and he was talking about myth the idea of myth now myth does not mean um, a myth is not a story that didn't happen we 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 misuse the word in our culture when we say oh it's just a myth we mean it was something which was necessarily fictional Mm. it's a it's used to dismiss it's used to dismiss things that's that's not what the word myth means the word myth means a story preserved as a vehicle of meaning. And myths are not truths. Truths are always 
uh, the truth about something. So that I can tell you the truth about the weather today in Launceston, or I could tell you the truth about negative numbers, or I could tell you the, the truth about the coronavirus. So truths are always truths about something. A good story encapsulates a fundamental fact, a fundamental thing that is, about which we can notice many truths. Mm. And that's certainly the case with the Exodus stories, and there's so many ideas. And, and, and often there's disagreement in the world about, about what the world is really like. And the, the story of the Exodus is the same. You would have to look at a people suffering oppression and say these people are not, these people are not destined to great things. And, you know, against all odds, God intervenes. And there's these fundamental ideas about God being a God of provision, a God of deliverance. And, and on that story, it's a theme that can be developed, I'm sure, in, in many ways. It's one of these diamonds with a with hundred facets. I mean, as you're saying that, I, on, in terms of the, the meaning of the story, I'm reminded of something that has often intrigued me. When we read the Ten Commandments, in my experience, we so often read them from Exodus 20. And in particular, the Sabbath commandment, which is in Exodus 20, it describes, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And it says, um, not only you, but your son, your daughter and everything. And then in verse 11 of Exodus 20, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And I think that the reason why we often quote that one is because there's a there's a certain inherent logic to that argument. We keep Sabbath because God rested on Sabbath and made it holy. But the Ten Commandments are listed again, and that's in Deuteronomy 5. And in Deuteronomy 5, the, the main difference is in the rationale or the reasoning or the explanation of Sabbath. Deuteronomy 5 verse 12 starts the same way observe the sabbath day to keep it holy as your lord the lord your god commanded you work for six days you should rest on the sabbath but also your female servant your male servant your children your animals and then in verse 15 you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of egypt and the lord your god brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm therefore the lord your god commanded you to keep the sabbath day and I wonder whether the reason that that's quoted less often uh, in the context of discussions about the Sabbath is simply that the logic seems a little bit less apparent there. It's less direct. Because what is the, what is the flow of reasoning that says, because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery and oppression with a mighty and outstretched arm, you should remember the seventh day. Well, look, it's not, it's not the only difference. I'm looking at the two passages. And in Exodus, in the Exodus telling, it says, You shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor daughter, nor your manservant, maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. Because of creation, so observe the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy, it says, Neither you, nor your son, nor daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your... And it goes into specific, your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals. So we've got a, a greater level of specificity because it actually lists sp specific animals. Nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. That's not included in the, in the Exodus telling. 
In verse 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out there with mighty hand. Therefore, keep the Sabbath. And um, it yeah. seems to me that what the the Deuteronomy telling is the nuance it is bringing out is is a bit like the this parable of the servant who was given the money and buried it, and the master was furious because because God's good things he he gives to us are things which he expects us to reinvest. And there's Christ's parable, of course, about the servant who has forgiven huge amounts and wouldn't forgive other people. Yep. So, so God took you out of Egypt. Don't forget, you, here you've got these servants working underneath you and aliens in the gates and foreigners. Pe- people perhaps who are having the experience of living in a place where everyone speaks a foreign language, which is drawn out in our psalm. And they're cultural misfits. And they're finding it tough. And don't forget that God delivered you from that. And so once a week, you need to deliver them. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. Um, I, I, I think it. I mean, it's similar to a, a, a string of thoughts that I've had over the years, and it highlights the when I said that there seemed to be a less apparent logic. I was meaning that there seems to be a less apparent, obvious logic for those of us who are disconnected from the Exodus story. But I think, as you describe, if you are letting the Exodus story provide you with a lot of meaning, provide you with a useful framework and lens through which to see the world, then the flow of logic in Deuteronomy 5 regarding the Sabbath is incredibly obvious. And I think you've outlined some ways in which that, in which that is, in fact, a little bit obvious. So this is getting to the issue of history and stories providing meaning yeah for our experiences of the world yeah that's right stories are so incredibly powerful you can you can go to any you know school playground and hear kids say young kids will say oh it's just like in the lion king when you know mufasa does this or that um and with slightly older kids it'll it'll be different references oh it's just like in Back to the Future, or it's just like in Star Wars. Um, mm. And what they are doing is bearing testament to the fact that that the stories they listen to equip them with a vocabulary to describe life. I think your your Im- image lock of a lens, it's the lens through which they look at at, at the world. It's, it's what you do when you pass the world, when you try and break it down to its pieces to make sense of it. We rely so heavily on the stories. I mean, we we see this, for instance, in Aboriginal Dreamtime stories. Aboriginal Dreamtime stories were phenomenally successful in the sense that they they obviously provided meaning to the people who told them in ways that helped them live life. And we know they did it for such a for a very long amount of time because it is possible to date some of the events they described, things like the um, receding Australian coastline, which has at mm. one point receded more than 100 kilometres per year um, with, with melting ice caps. And that would obviously would have been for coastal dwelling people a, an amazing event. And, and I remember seeing a David Attenborough documentary on the Great Barrier Reef where he talks to some Aboriginal communities about these stories and the, the, the reef dates back to about the same time. 
and um, and the story that they tell is about the waters coming in and covering the ocean, but it's it's that that's the event on which the story is based. But the truth that it tells is about the need to respect the natural kingdom. It, it's the fundamental truth about our dependence, the dependence these people had on, on the ocean for food, and that it is a thing that, that is not under our control. And other elements, I'm sure I'm not very conversant with the story, um, but it's obvious that these stories meant things to people. Well, they had they had to have been worth transmitting generation yes. to generation yes. many I mean, generations you, you don't you don't that's right you don't take the effort to do that unless the thing is providing some value and this value is presumably in terms of meaning and sense making and culture preservation yeah and and this is this is the value uh, this is this is testament to the power of a myth and as i said at the start i'm very anxious that no one hears me talking about myths and imagines that i'm thinking that myths are necessarily fictional. That's not true. A myth is a vehicle of meaning. Lewis writes a great essay um, called a Myth Became Fact. And he looks at the historical, and he, he regarded it as a um, very historical account of Christ's life in the gospel, as a culmination of a myth, a myth that turns up in many cultures, you know there are stories along these lines. You know the myth of the dying god, who comes back to life. And in many cultures, there is this idea of the dying god, and and the thing comes into much clearer focus, obviously in the Jewish tradition, and clearer into focus, clearer into focus until the thing actually happens. The myth becomes fact. Then Lewis makes an interesting observation. He says whether you regard the Christian story as historical in the sense of factual, is less important than whether you see it as a powerful myth. It's obviously not something you have to choose. Something can be mythic and factual. It, it's a false distinction to say you have to pick um, its factual correctness or the meaning. But if you did have to choose, the meaning is the valuable part. Lewis says, A man who disbelieved the Christian story as fact, but continually fed on it as a myth, would perhaps be more spiritually alive than one who assented to its factual correctness, but didn't think about it very much. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting. And your comparison with the Aboriginal Dreamtime stories, and again, I have to be careful because I'm not an expert here, but it seems that our culture, our modern Australian, I mean white modern Australian, European uh, Australian culture, is perhaps slightly more comfortable accepting the mythic value of dreamtime stories and sidestepping the question of its historical factualness in in a, in, a, in that sense um then it is willing to engage in that way with some elements of the bible the christian bible and the hebrew scriptures and that seems to be uh, sometimes a little bit unfair so I mean I guess the question is the the summary of all this is it it is very good to question to research to think about the historicity of the Bible to a point but why is it important that it happened or that parts of it happened I mean we we don't we don't require for instance that the good samaritan 
was a story that involved actual, real, historical people. We, we have no need of that. Nor, nor do we look at it and say it is, we must read this story as it is. And if you are on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho and you notice someone who is of a certain you know, racial descent, who's been beaten up by robbers, you must go and find a donkey and put that person <laughs> on the donkey. I mean, we look at, we look at Christ's parables. And Christ never introduced, he never prefaced his stories by, by saying, oh, by the way, this one didn't actually happen. Because that that's immaterial. Mm. So, so by all means, let's us discuss the historicity of the Bible, um, but only if we are going to feed on it, as C.S. Lewis said, as an as an abstract question that that we can entertain and think great thoughts about, and then p- shut our Bible and put it back on the shelf and it not impact our lives. The historicity of the Bible on those grounds, the, the whole discussion is is worthless. Yeah, it's worthless unless it has, unless it is let to have impact on the way we see the world and the way we live our lives. The proof, I think, the ultimate proof, and the only real proof that we can offer to a needy world about the truth contained in the Bible is evidence in our own lives. Well, I suspect that that's uh, a really good summary point for us to finish on. We're so glad you could join us for our discussion today, and we look forward to having Luke and Ken back uh, with us to take part next week. We've got an interesting choice of psalm next week. We're going to look at, at Psalm 22 and Psalm 23, adjacent next to each other in the psalms, but you couldn't find a more stark contrast in terms of tone. And obviously this this choice was made deliberately by the person who assembled the book of psalms, uh, presumably there is something in the adjacency of those two psalms that adds extra meaning to each of them. Thanks again for joining us and we look forward to having you with us next week.